Exercise doesn't have to be painful. Your diet doesn't need to be bland and boring. It's time to have less pain and move more and learn how to be better to yourself. Welcome to Pain-Free Day with your host, Joshua Cohen. In this program, you'll learn the pain-free way to eat, the pain-free way to exercise, and the pain-free way to live a better life. Now, here's Joshua Cohen. Welcome to Pain-Free Day. I'm Dr. Joshua Cohen. I'm here with Christy Stuber, and today we are going to talk about stress and motivation and how they are connected. So Christy and I were just kind of talking a little bit about um, stress brain. So it's something that I've, I've been hearing more and more about. Um, you know, and she was asking what, my, uh, what I associated stress brain with. And so one of the things that I've been hearing a lot about is whenever we get stressed out, um, it affects the higher functioning in our brains. And I want to say that it's the amygdala that is primarily responsible for kind of processing stress. I know it goes up through the brain stem. You know, I think it ascends to the amygdala. I'm not positive about that. But from what I've been reading with um, and hearing about stress brain is that you don't really like once you get stressed, once we get stressed out, our brains don't function the same way. We're not able to access the higher level kind of thinking that we, for rational thinking. We're not able to really think as rationally as possible. We get more into irrational or emotional thinking. Um, you know, and that can really affect us in a lot of ways and make it very difficult to, you know, to deal with stress. You know, I always kind of looked at it with stress is that, you know, the calmer we are, you know, the better we're going to be able to deal with a stressful situation or a stressful environment. But, you know, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, that's great. Great way to start. So you're right, the amygdala is involved a bit in this and that the amygdala really activates our fight flight response. So it's what causes us to sort of clench together when we're um, feeling threatened in some way. Uh, what really gets impacted is the prefrontal cortex. And that's the part of the brain right behind your forehead. And that's the part of the brain that's really involved in, as you mentioned, this higher level thinking. So goal direction, making memories, decision-making, understanding others, and empathy. And we're not able to access it as clearly because it gets overwhelmed with um, hormones that make it not function as well when we are stressed. Well, so one of the main stress hormones that I hear a lot about is cortisol. Is that one of the hormones that you're talking about? Cortisol is certainly involved in the brain. Um, Amy Arnson from Yale talks a lot about two um, hormones that are called dopamine and norepinephrine. And okay. specifically when those two are either um, overactivated or underactivated, then our prefrontal cortex does not work as well. And we are now having a stress response. She calls the prefrontal cortex, the Goldilocks of the brain. It has to be just right. <laughs> That's funny, you know, because I, I, so the way, you know, with dealing with the human body and dealing with pain, pain responses, you know, what I find is that, you know, I always kind of describe it to my patients that, you know, when you're stressed out, you're just going to hold yourself tighter. Things are going to be a little tighter, but then your body releases cortisol. Cortisol is an inflammatory hormone. So it's like throwing fuel on the fire. A muscle that's tight, irritated, slightly inflamed, it'll make it more inflamed. I would assume norepinephrine and, you know, especially norepinephrine, that's one of the things that kind of like, I, be I believe it kind of speeds you up a little bit, you know, releases when you're stressed, when you're in a state, uh, a stress state, and that kind of makes everything kind of speed up a little bit. You know, dopamine, is it accurate that that's kind of the opposite of the, um, you know, opposite of norepinephrine? 
I, I believe they're both going to be used. They're both going to be causing stimulating reactions in people. Okay. Um, and so if you don't have enough, then you might feel more sluggish of both, or if you have too much. Weirdly, if you have too much, you also can feel sluggish because your point is your body kind of shuts down when you're over overstressed because it doesn't know how to handle what's going on. Gotcha. Well, you know, I, I've seen it also, you know, kind of long-term in certain types of drug use and different things where it's like your dopamine, dopamine receptors don't really receive dopamine as well. So your body has to produce more dopamine in order to get that good feeling. You know, I've also heard about that in different kind of ways in dealing with stress as well. You know, the more stressed we are, the more kind of insensitive we are to the feel-good hormones and the more kind of we need to produce. Is that accurate? That, that would certainly make sense. I think we also need to remember that everybody's going to have an individual response to all of this. So some people, when stressed, are going to go into a flight mode. Some are going to go into a fight mode. Others are going to freeze. And the other thing that's really unique is these chemicals and this just right part of the brain um, is different for everybody. Everybody so, has I a different amount that they need. That makes so much sense. And I see that in dealing with just dealing with the human body. And one of the things I, the, one of the things that I love, I learned in anatomy class in, uh, in chiropractic school, is that we're as different on the inside as we are on the outside. You know, not meaning that somebody's like heart's going to be up in their brain or something like that, but everybody's wired a little bit differently. Everybody's body chemistry is just a little bit different. You know, which is why some of us will, you know, everybody processes, you know, something like um, Advil or Motrin a little bit differently, ibuprofen a little bit differently. Everybody's a little bit different and it makes different things kind of, you know, it makes us all react a little bit differently to, you know, to different, uh, different stimuli. And one of the things that I see consistently is that if somebody's sensitive in one area, chances are they're going to be more sensitive to other areas as well. You know, it's like if somebody's sensitive to certain, you know, it's certain like medications and things. They can be certain, they can be also be sensitive just to physical stresses. They can be more susceptible to emotional stresses. I kind of like, you know, it's like, I kind of, I love it how it's like everything is connected. Everything's kind of, everything kind of works together, you know, and with the mind body, you know, stress definitely is more of a mind issue, but it really affects our body in so many different ways. There's definitely physiological effects to it. Um, so, you know, how did you get into this? You know, wh um, what do you do? So I'm a life coach um, and I work with people to help them stress less with the goal of being able to live their life with more clarity. So I do this by helping people identify and rewire patterns in their brain that maybe have taken them in directions in a very habitual way that don't serve them and help to create new patterns and pathways to get them going where they want to go. Um, uh Mm -hmm. And it's fascinating. I love it. I mean, especially learning about the neuroscience and understanding all the impacts of the brain and the body and the behaviors that come out. That's, I love that. That makes so much sense because I, with the muscle work that I do with working with trigger points, I'm kind of rewiring the body and the way I describe it is I'm creating, you know, breaking the muscles out of old habits and patterns they've fallen into and helping them to kind of create new habits or patterns, you know, um, helping them kind of get back to their old, natural, normal, healthy patterns, you know, because I mean, I even look at it as like, you know, anxiety can be kind of a learned response where, you know, a stress happens and you just react. You just tighten up and just go into this reflexive response, you know, that a lot of us can't control. A lot of times we're even, it's just subconscious. We're not even conscious that we're necessarily reacting that way. You know, I know that I do that and, you know, and I'll catch myself and saying, ah, here I go again. I'm doing this again. You know, I, I, I was 
you know, focusing on not responding or reacting that way, but here I am doing it again. That's why awareness is such a key part of this and working with somebody. You know, we can only do some of it on your own, just like with your, your, what you do, right? I can only dig my, mus- my muscles with my finger on my own so much, but I really need somebody who knows what they're doing to help me understand what's happening. So as a coach, I could work with you to say, okay, so what was going through your brain in that moment? How can we slow you down a bit so that you don't react as quickly? Um, and how can we help you learn new ways to react? And so it's a lot of reflection, a lot of debriefing, and a lot of um, awareness that goes into developing these new patterns. So that makes a lot of sense because I look at it as well. It's like with the muscle work that I'm doing, the trigger point therapy, I'm kind of looking at the whole, uh, the whole body, you know, and I need to see how the whole body reacts as opposed to just part of it. And it sounds like that's what you're talking about as well, seeing how the whole body reacts as opposed to, you know, the whole kind of looking at the whole picture, you know, and if I'm trying to do it myself, I'm just looking at one small reaction that I'm doing and thinking, ah, that's not great. But, you know, maybe it's more of, but why am I reacting like that? What's behind the reactions? you know, what history has gone into it, you know, kind of trying to break it down. Is that accurate? Yeah, that's a great analogy. It's a great analogy. A lot of what I do in my coaching is asking people how they feel in their bodies. So when they talk about being anxious, well, where do they feel that? Because often in our bodies, those are early warning signs, what's happening in our brain. So somebody might say, oh, I have like butterflies on my stomach. Well, how can we learn that that's a cue to maybe be more aware of how we're going to behave? Um, that was, a, it was a great analogy, Josh. Thank you. <laughs> Thank Love you. It. It's, a, you know, it's funny. It's kind of, it kind of reminds me of like the canary in the coal mine, you know, <laughs> where it's like, you have, you know, because I'll see it physically with somebody having mm-hmm. small symptoms. I'm like, okay, well, that's a symptom of something potentially bigger coming up. Let's pay attention to it. You know, I don't believe in coincidences with the human body. I mean, certainly there are some, but really it's like a lot of times if something's going on, it's going on because something else is maybe building up, something else is accumulating that we're not really aware of. Well, it's very preventative too, right? If we can start to catch things earlier on in the process, either behavioral or physical, then what are we preventing from happening down the road? Maybe we're preventing a, a massive fight with your partner, or maybe you're preventing some irregularity in the person's body that might affect how they walk or sit, right? So if we can do it further back in a prevention state, we're preventing other things from going on. Oh, that's awesome. That's excellent. Now, um, let me see, do you, um, what, what type of people do you work with? Really anyone who's interested in learning, you know, so people who come to me want to do better in their lives, and it could be in any really aspect of their way, it could be at work with their manager or their employees, with their partners, with their kids, or just individually, they want to appear different in the world, and so they're learning um, ways to do that and they really want to explore what that looks like for them. What I love about coaching is it's so individual as I mentioned and so I can come up with a million different tools but really it's what works best for that client. You have the same thing I'm sure in what you do. Sure. Yeah. You know, and every, as we were just saying, everybody's going to react a little bit differently. You know, some people are going to react better to, you know, with myself, some people are going to react better with heavier pressure. You know, uh, some people are going to react better without as much pressure. Some people will have emotional releases. Some people, you know, are just going to be completely quiet. You know, everybody's a little bit different with this. You know, how, uh, how, what do you, how do you start out? You know, what's the, uh, you know, what do you start out with? Do you mainly, do you look at what the person's coming in for? Do you look at, you have certain cues that you look for? Yeah, it, um, 
It depends on when the person's coming. If they're coming in for a one-time engagement or if they want something longer. Either way, I'm going to be looking at how what is their ideal sense of how they want to be in this situation? So it might be a work situation. It might be a who am I in this world situation? So it could be very big or very small. But really tapping into an ideal sense of self um, helps people remain very open to possibility and very creative to creating new options. Uh, We know that for sustained change to happen, that vision needs to be very clear and there needs to be a very deep commitment to it. So spending a lot of time with people about what do you want to be appearing as is where I start with people. And then we look at strengths and values and, and other things to help support that. But they need to be clear about where they want to be. So how do you deal with motivation? You know, I mean, I've been finding it's a pretty big topic lately, especially with everybody being, you know, every, everybody's kind of, you know, uh, uh, self-quarantined, you know, um, everybody's a little stressed out. You know, I talked to a lot of people who are having trouble motivating themselves to exercise, motivating themselves. You know, it's like with a lot of kids just motivating themselves to be in front of the computer to do, you know, classes, adults motivating themselves to be in front of the computer and do Zoom classes, you know, uh, or do Zoom meetings. You know, um, I've been having trouble with motivating people to get them to exercise. I worked with my kids a bit and said, well, you know, you don't want to come out of the shape like a potato. You know, I put up a squat rack. I have them exercising, you know, and I think that that's helped them out mentally as well, you know, um, but it's like, you know, certainly with your own kids, it can be very difficult to motivate. I would assume it's a little, I mean, how, how do you deal with motivation with uh, clients? Yeah, I think it's hard, especially when it's your own kids, because you think you know what's best for them. And in many ways you do. Um, However, what the brain research shows us is that we need to tap into what the person really wants and where they want to be. So, again, it goes back to that vision, and it goes back to creating positive goals versus negative goals. So, losing weight for people feels negative. Saying, um, I want to be able to walk my daughter down the aisle on her wedding is a more positive, holistic goal. So that's where you might start. There's other two really key components that are necessary in this. Um, one is that the person um, feels that they are being coached or treated with compassion. So it's not judgmental or punitive. You think about a work situation where you get put on a performance improvement plan. That's not compassionate. <laughs> but if it can have you know, being cared for, then the person's more likely to step up into the challenge. And then the third is very key, and that's having that resonant relationship. So whoever the helping person is, if it's a parent, a teacher, a doctor, or a coach, it, it needs to be a really meaningful relationship. So what I say all the time is um, it's important to talk to different coaches before you sign on with somebody. You've got to find the one that you click with, just like you do with your doctors, right? You might have a doctor, you're just not quite not quite jiving with, and so maybe that's not the best doctor for you because if you don't connect, you might not follow the guidance that you need to follow. So resident relationship, compassion, and vision are the three key things to really focus on for sustained change. So, and that makes sense, and especially putting it in a positive way. One of the motivating factors that I found from my patients that I talked to them about is, you know, um, I, I find that grandkids is, you know, from you know my father and from other people they talk about, it's one of the great joys of life. You know, like, well, you know, let's keep you in shape so you can chase after your grandchildren if you're lucky enough to have them, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and it's like, that's a nice way to kind of put it into a positive, kind of into a positive light, as opposed to like you were saying, like, ah, let's lose weight, you know, which that does, that does sound negative, yeah. you know? 
And I think with, with your kids, when you think about kids, they can't think about their grandkids. The kids are only, what, 14 years old, 16 years old. Their life is so short. So I do think maybe asking them, how do they want to get through this, this term in school or this time of the pandemic? You know, kind of shortening their, their, their future vision is really helpful since it, it, it's so much of their life, right? They don't have that sense of legacy that we might have as we get older. That makes sense. That makes sense. Um, so, I mean, you know, so do you have any specific techniques for, mo- for motivating people? You know, I mean, so you talk about the three components, kind of b- help break them down. I mean, actually, it makes sense because as opposed to looking at the big picture and saying like, you know, you know like you're saying, like with grandchildren, we're going to focus on something 20 years from now. And I do find it's better, it's more tangible to fo- focus on something a little more current, you know, a little more within their grasp, mm-hmm. you know. And I think it depends on the person. For some people, depending on where they are in their life, 20 years might be meaningful. I mean, if you look at, um, I think you and I are in the same stage of life, 20 years for us starts to look at retirement. And so that might be a, a, a goal for us. Other people, it's 10 years. Uh, so I, I always try to leave it up to the person to decide how far in advance they want to, to dream out. And then my questions are really, if life was fantastic, if it was amazing, in 10 years, in 20 years, what would it look like? And I get them to go very detailed. And sometimes this conversation takes many, many times. Um, Dreaming is hard. I don't know about you, but I'm not a big dreamer unless I'm really forced to in these kinds of scenarios. It's kind of scary. So the first dream might not be complete enough. So letting people go even deeper down to like, what are you wearing? What house are you in? Like really getting granular, but that creates that motivation. So really taking the time to do that creates the motivation. That makes sense. Like for myself, I have a harder time. Like I kind of look at big picture things. I'm a dreamer. I'm always kind of in my head thinking about things that could happen, things potentially that can happen. I have a harder time bringing myself back down to earth and saying, okay, what do I need to do now? Step by step to get to this, you know, this uh, goal that I have, you know? And so like, you know, like you said, everybody focus, everybody's a little bit different. And with my wife, we actually, we kind of balance each other out really well because she's very detail oriented. And me, I kind of look at myself as more of like, I mean, I feel like a mad scientist sometimes (laughs) where I'm just heads in the clouds and focusing on all these bigger picture things, but I forget about the small details that you have to do in order to get to that point, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. And that's where a coach or another relationship like your wife could be really helpful to help you get there. That makes sense. You know, mm-hmm. one of the things that you touched on that I, I want to touch on as well is I'm a big believer in trusting your instincts when you're dealing with anybody like this. You know, and I talk to my patients about that a lot where I say, you know, trust your instincts when you're dealing with a doctor. If you don't like this person, go see somebody else. You know, if you don't like the surgeon, if the surgeon's not answering your questions before you go into surgery, they're not going to answer your questions afterwards. You know, so trust your instincts. It's like I kind of look at it as, whether you're doing yoga, whether you're doing, you know, exercising, seeing a doctor, seeing a coach, you know, psychiatrist, psychologist, any of that stuff, you're going to react to a style that they use. You're going to react to the person. You're going to react to their setting. You're going to react to all of that stuff. And that's all going to kind of help, you know, motivate you, whether to motivate you, motivate you or demotivate you, you know, make you more likely to do it or less likely to do it. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I I still tell the story about my chemistry teacher in high school who I did not have a positive relationship with. And to this day, I cannot do chemistry. (laughs) You know, I just never got over it, right? But if you think about those teachers in your life that you really connected to, I bet you like those topics a lot better. And I think Mm -hmm. we're trained in many ways with doctors, right, not to second guess those Mm -hmm. instincts. And I think you're right, really tapping into 
how you feel in a situation is really important, especially when it comes to your health. You want to be working with somebody that you trust. So, you know, and that's a, that's a really key point too, is that we are taught a lot of times not to ask questions, not to, you know, just kind of what they're saying is that's gospel. Let me just take that and just, you know, I'm going to work with that, you know, but I mean, so I always find, you know, you go see a doctor, you're better off taking somebody else with you because you're going to focus on one thing. They're going to start talking about something else. You know, you're going to focus on one thing and miss other things, you know, um, but it's, you know, it's, it, it's so important in how you deal with the, you know, and how you process these people and whether you have a good relationship with them or not, whether you like them or not, you know, whether you're going to listen to them, you know, but you need to be able to, we need to be able to ask questions. We need to be able to say, hey, you know what? Okay, I understand that this worked for this patient, but I don't know if it's going to work for me, you know, and I always like to say to people, I love ice. I love cold, you know, but it's not going to work for everybody. There's no 100% steadfast rule that I find that works for every single person. You know, what I do, I'm good at the muscle work, but that's also not going to be right for every single, you know, person out there. 100% of the people out there are not going to react favorably to it. You know, everybody is a little bit different. You know, it's part of what keeps our jobs interesting and challenging, you know? Well, and it's what's so great about the world, right? That I might not be for everybody, but somebody else is. So if I'm not the right coach for somebody, I'm sure I can find somebody else who might be. And I think you also brought up a really good point that relates back to this idea of neuroscience and stress, which is if you are going to the doctor because there is a more serious conversation that needs to happen, you are not likely to be able to process that information well if it's about yourself, right? Your brain, again, is overloaded. You're stressed. So having someone else there be able to ask the questions to be more objective and more focused on the data is is really necessary in order for you to then be able to walk away and make a good decision. That makes sense. So now are you seeing, especially, you know, during this pandemic period are more people coming to you stressed out, like, you know, harder to focus, like, you know, I'm seeing that in different ways. I'm curious as to how you're, what you are seeing. Yeah. I'm really curious to see how you're seeing it in the body. I would say in the last four months, I've talked to over a hundred people all over the world, you know, people in the United States and Canada and Israel and India and they're all um, having similar behaviors. They're feeling insecure, isolated, irritable, anxious, overwhelmed, tired. And that's underlying everything else that's happening in their life. And when you start to like deal, you know, sort of dig into what's going on, whatever the issue is they're talking about, you realize so much of it's based on stress, that people are just so stressed with what's happening in the world right now. I'm curious what you're seeing in the body. Uh, so your clients, yeah, you know, what I've been saying, I've been seeing it across the board, uh, you know, is that, you know, decreased activity, in increased time in front of the computer and increased stress, you know, especially if somebody's living alone. I mean, I think that that can be even more difficult, you know, versus like, you know, at least, if, you know, if you have a partner or a spouse, you know, you have some, even though you might get tired of them, at least you have some company. You know, and generally they're the person that you really want to spend the most time around. So it does make it a little bit easier. But also as well, I've been hearing that this is a big period for divorces. You know, I kind of look at it. It's like, you know, to a certain degree, make or break time with a lot of people's uh, relationships. You know, it's like, well, you know, do we want to keep doing this or do we not? You know, is it worthwhile? You know, because also when you're with somebody all of the time or not, you know, you're not really going out you know, you can kind of reassess, you know, see uh, your relationship, you get to see different things crop up, you know, but uh, it's funny, maybe about a month ago, I had people starting to come out of the woodwork, just everybody's stressed out, you know, their necks are in spasm, they're irritated, you know, because, um, you know, it's like, one of the stress responses for most people is they will clench, you know, and most people, everybody clenches in different areas, but a lot of people will clench with their teeth, and their shoulders come up to their ears, 
And that just irritates that whole complex between your neck, your shoulders, your jaw, you know, and people's jaws are getting stuck. Their shoulders are going to spasm, necks going into spasm, you know, and it's like, you know, after spending many hours, in, you know, so not only are you having the stress irritating things, but just spending all that time in front of the computer hunched over will irritate them as well. You know, people aren't used to spending that much time in front of the computer and it really gets them. What I've been finding as well is even just like missing, you know, people are missing just walking from their car to their office. And it's a little bit of activity that helps out and makes a big difference, you know, in their just kind of daily outlook, you know, and they're missing that. Yeah. And it's not just a little bit of exercise, that walk from your car to your office, but it's that um, change of scenery. You know, for so many people who are working at home, they're not leaving their homes a whole lot. And so it becomes rather boring. You know, and so when we think back again to what causes sort of stress in the brain, in a weird way, not doing anything different makes us understressed. And so I think about people like my parents who are retired and who knows what they're doing with their days because they're stuck at home and they need something novel in their life or something new. We used to get that by parking our car in different spots and walking to the store or our office or whatever and looking at what's happening in the world. Now it's, we're looking at our four walls and that's it. That's really interesting because part of what I've been hearing about physical fitness is just like, you know, in order to get into shape, you need to be able to do the same thing over and over again and not get bored with it, <laughs> you know, like exercise, you know, you tend to do the same activities over and over and over again, but, you know, you need to find some novelty with it. You know, maybe part of it is helping, you know, it's like, you know, because what I'll talk to patients about is like, well, you know, how do you you know, how are we going to work a little bit of activity into your life? How are we going to work like, you know, just changing your position from being in front of the computer to doing something else? You know, even just like, you know, I have this one patient who he's in finance and, you know, he's studying for a big financial exam. So all he does is just study and work. And it's like, okay, well, you know what? Let's get you outside. Let's get you moving a little bit. How about just go for a walk in the park, you know, breathe some fresh air, get some fresh oxygen, you know, get polarized with the earth, you know, for lack of a better expression, you know, you know, walk, walk bare feet in the grass, you know, different things like that, that really do make a, make a difference. Hey, um, I, we need to pause for one minute just for, uh, for advertising, just right, not for station identification, but we need to pause for one minute and we will be right back. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Are you in pain? Has your doctor told you that you need to start exercising, but you don't know where? Do you want to exercise, but you are in too much pain? Or you start a new exercise routine only to injure yourself and have to stop? How do you exercise when you are in pain? How do you exercise and eat to reduce pain and inflammation? Is your pain associated with what you eat? If you have any of these questions or are interested in any of the topics discussed on Dr. Joshua Cohen's show, then you'll want to check out CohenTriggerPoint.com. You'll find information on all of the topics covered on the show. The site features an extensive library of blogs covering most health topics. There's also an exercise and nutrition program that is designed to get you from not exercising at all to moving, exercising, and eating healthy in consistent ways that are easy on your body and wallet. Join the gentle revolution. Go easy on your body because the rest of the world won't be easy on you. Exercise smarter, not harder. Eat smarter. Don't follow bad diets. 
exercise sustainably, eat sustainably, have a pain-free day. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You are listening to Pain-Free Day with Joshua Cohen. To reach the show today, call in to 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. Or send an email to josh at cohentriggerpoint.com. Now, back to Pain-Free Day. Welcome back to Pain-Free Day. I'm Dr. Joshua Cohen. I'm here with Christy Stuber. We're talking about stress motivation, its effects on our brain, on our body, on our health. So um, one of the things that Christy was talking about are the, I believe it's a five, was it the five, uh, five points of brain health? You know, yeah. let, let's start with that. Yeah, the five keys to a healthy brain. Um, you know, there's, there's five things that we know we need to do to keep our brains healthy. And at this time, when everyone is so stressed, I really find focusing on these five to be really useful. Um, I talk about it a lot with my clients. And I also really like to remind people that um, in, you know, before the pandemic, before everything else that's happening in the world, we might have been able to get away with one or two of these, but now we're really having to dig deep and really pull all of our tools out of our toolbox to, to keep us um, from being so overstressed. So all of these things are going to help the brain stay flexible, healthy, and sharp, especially while we're feeling stressed. Um, I'll list them maybe, and then we can dig into them if you want in whatever order you yeah. find is useful. Um, so the five keys are exercise, sleep, nutrition, mindfulness, and novelty. So the one component that I find really interesting is novelty. You know, I, I didn't know that. I didn't, but, you know, it kind of makes sense that, you know, you need to stimulate your brain. And I was always, so what I've seen with novelty is that it's a way to help stave off dementia. You know, um, having people, you know, it's like I'm, I'm big into having people do like crossword puzzles, Sudoku, different things like that, you know, go out for a walk um, because it helps stimulate your brain, you know, um, learn a new activity, learn, you know, play a new instrument, learn a language, learn a new act, you know, exercise, different things like that. Everything that I've read says that that helps create new neurological pathways and connections in our brains, which helps, you know, stave off dementia but I didn't know that it was good for, you know, depression, anxiety. Can you elaborate on that? Yeah, so you're absolutely right. So novelty will stimulate neuronal connections. But the other thing it does is increases levels of dopamine. So if our dopamine levels in our brain, especially in our prefrontal cortex, are low, then we're not thinking as clearly, um, not able to make as good decisions, not able to empathize as much. So if we can bring some novelty into our lives, we can increase that level to, uh, again, get us to that sweet spot of where we want to be to have a more balanced brain. And right now, novelty is hard, you know, again, with people being home. um, And so I think about my own life right now, what we've been doing is on Saturday nights, we order takeaway from a restaurant that we love. And for me, it's like knowing every Saturday, I'm going to have something new and different. It's not going to be the same old, you know, food that I make every other night of the week. That sort of helps me, um, I think, stay energized. With clients, I've talked about, you know, 
taking a run on a different path or a walk in a different route. So not falling into the habit of the same old route, but maybe turning left instead of right, because you might notice something new and that might create a little bit of that, um, that stimulation that can help your brain. That's funny. And that makes so much sense about cooking as well, because, you know, so many more people are cooking now, which is great. It's great for everybody's health. You know, I feel we're much better off cooking at home than we are eating out. I've read stuff that says, which makes sense. It's like, if you don't know how to cook, you can't keep yourself healthy. It's very, very difficult to, but you know, it also becomes a chore. You know, it's like my wife and I, we love cooking together. It's one of the things we look forward to, but it's funny. I'll kind of say, let's, let's prevent it from becoming a chore. You know, let's prevent it from becoming a job. You know, and so it's like I have different ways where I'll kind of work, you know, it's like I like to just relax and kind of get into it, you know, and especially if my wife's there, it just makes it a lot more enjoyable. We can have good conversations, you know, but that doesn't always work out every single night. You know, we're not, you know, it's like, well, sometimes we'll have to discuss heavier things that one doesn't agree with. You know, sometimes we'll have to, you know, one person will want to cook one thing. Sometimes we won't have everything that we need to cook, you know, so on and so on and so on. You know, just the normal little little stresses that can happen. But, you know, it's like when we're under a big stress, you know, saying, hey, you can't go out to eat right now. You can't go out and see your friends. It makes smaller stresses you know, seem a lot bigger. Well, and I think the other key to all of this is it has to be so much more intentional. Again, and before the pandemic, you could just go and do that. You could try a different restaurant or you could visit a different grocery store to buy different kinds of foods to cook or take a different walk. But now you have to be so intentional, which which can be hard for people to do, um, it, but it's so necessary. It's just yeah. so necessary. And I would assume when you say intentional, you mean we have to be more mindful of it. <laughs> Good segue. <laughs> yeah, so I think being more mindful, so being more clear about what we need and then knowing how to achieve it. Um, but yes, yeah, so mindfulness is, is huge. You know, mindfulness is the most effective solution to any neuroscience challenge any of us are encountering from trying to increase creativity to improving memory, having more emotionally intelligent um, conversations and lowering stress. Um, but I think people hear mindfulness and they get stressed out. They're like, oh, I have to go sit on a pillow for an hour with my legs crossed and my eyes closed. <laughs> um, and that's not necessarily what I'm talking about when I talk about mindfulness. Um, I just think even just pausing to take some deep breaths during the day stopping to smell the roses literally literally yeah. right or when going from one transition point to another just pausing and taking a deep breath because to your point josh you've said this so well when people are stressed and their bodies go in defensive mode they're clenched their jaws are clenched their shoulders are clenched well taking it you cannot take a deep breath when you're physically like that so stopping right. to take a deep breath can open you back up it can re, sort of reset you physiologically, um, rebalance your brain because you're getting more oxygen up there. Oxygen is moving away from all your muscles back into your brain. It can just help you think more clearly. That makes a lot of sense. You know, it's funny when I, so my father, he, he did the job that he worked, did trigger point work for many, many years. He was very spiritual and he would talk about being, he would talk about mindfulness pertaining to when he was walking down the hallway in his office, being mindful of where he was. I'm walking down the hallway right now, focusing on where I am. I am breathing. I'm going in to treat this person as opposed to like, you know, having your heads in the clouds or thinking of something else, you know? And it was like, that, for me, it's like that kind of brought it back down to earth a little for, for me that that was very pertaining, you know, uh, I could relate to it. 
Yeah, I think that's right. So being really aware of your surroundings and being really thankful or grateful for them. And so mindfulness can be watching a sunrise. It could be petting your dog. Um, as long as you're conscious that you're doing it. My partner makes coffee every morning and it takes him a long time to make coffee because he has to grind the beans and he has to do. And what I've come to realize is that's a, that's a mindfulness practice for him. That's what he needs to do in the mornings to get himself focused for the day. It's not just the caffeine fix, but it's also being present in those moments, each step of the way to make that perfect cup of coffee. The, that ritual, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. and, it, it, and it's funny too. So talking about mindfulness and talking about how only a, a lot of people just associate, you know, going and sitting on a cushion for an hour. You know, one of the things that I, I talked to a lot of patients about is meditation to help reduce stress, anxiety, help yourself sleep a little better. But literally meditation can be just as easily as easy as going into a room, turning off the lights, setting a timer on your phone for five minutes, just focusing on your breath in and out, in and out, in and out. Eventually, you'll kind of start your mind will go off on different tangents, but you pull it back and focus on your breath. And it's just kind of a way of learning to control your mind, prevent it from going off on all these tangents, not necessarily being at the whim of whatever thought crosses your mind. You know, um, I'm a big believer, not, not that I'm all about control, but not that I'm all about control. Um, but if you can't control your mind, you really can't control anything. You know, and it's just, it's very difficult not to be, you know, to be at the whim of whatever thought crosses your mind. Yeah, and to create that awareness so that you know when it's happening. And then you're making a choice. Oh, my mind is right now going off to think about what I need to cook for dinner tonight. Do I want to go down that road or do I want to stay where I am right now? Ah. So like I mentioned, it's like slowing down that reaction time between something happening and the behavior. If we can slow it down. We can make more conscious decisions about what to do next. That makes a lot of sense. That makes a whole lot of sense. Okay, so, all right, let's talk about, uh, let me see. So, how does, how does sleep affect, uh, affect our brain health? Yeah, so every healthy adult needs um, seven to nine hours of sleep. And I think we're in a, a little bit of a culture sometimes where it's like, oh, I only need three hours. I only need four hours. Well, those are very few people and very far between. Our brain needs that full seven to nine hours to integrate what we've learned throughout the day. And then also... Um, Cerebral spinal fluid gets pumped up into the brain and it cleans out all the junk we don't need, you know, so this can um, benefit long term into like things like dementia or Alzheimer's, but also short term, just whatever's whatever's not needed anymore, let it come out of the brain. But that only happens, you know, in those later hours of sleeping. So three to four hours, you're missing that opportunity. Also, lack of sleep results in lack of impulse control and poor decisions. So, you don't sleep, maybe you don't exercise, or maybe in, for lunch, you reach for the comfort food and not the healthy food because your brain's not functioning as well as it might have if it had that chance to really clean out the night before. That makes sense. And so I've seen the effects of sleep on the body and I, you know, in so many different ways. Because um, one of the main differences that I see with, you know, just with how we are is that we don't, you know, as we age, you know, one of the big differences with aging is that we just don't recover as quickly as we did when we were younger. You know, a best example of that is like alcohol. When we were 21, you know, chances are you could go out and have a couple of drinks and not really even feel it the next day, probably even have more than a couple of drinks. Now you have a couple, I have a couple of drinks, I'm feeling it the next day. It's enough for me not to drink very much, you know, not recovering from the toxin of alcohol as quickly as what I used to. Um, you know, but then I'm in the exercise world and physical fitness world, you know, the quicker you can recover, the quicker you can have a bigger, a better workout the next day. 
one of the primary ways that steroids work is that they increase your recovery, help you recover super quickly from a big workout so you can do the next, do it again the next day and keep growing and growing. You know, but one of the things that I've read repeatedly is that, you know, if you're recover, if you're not recovering right, sleep more. You know, sleep is where you recover. It's where our bodies recover. Kind of like what you're saying. It's like, you know, our brain kind of clears out all these free radicals, different things like that, gets rid of the junk as we're sleeping. You know, it's when your body, there's all these different kind of positive feedback cycles that go into play as we are sleeping. I didn't know about cerebral spinal fluid, but that makes a lot of sense. You know, it's, it's when we can recover. And if we're not giving ourselves that much, you know, enough time to recover, then that stuff's just going to start building that junk in our brain and also in our muscles and our joints. It's going to start building up and accumulating and eventually start causing issues. I always go back to something that I read about uh, Amazon and the Amazon culture where they said, you know, it's like if you hit a wall, climb over it, you know, or something, you know, it's like people will be sending emails out at like 12 or 1 in the morning and it's just so bad for them. You know, they're aging prematurely. You know, number one, their bodies are getting more stressed, more inflamed. You know, the less you sleep, the more inflammation you're going to have. Um, you know, it just affects us in a lot of very negative ways. Yeah. And I think for, for many people, this is, a, this is an early warning sign. So if you're not paying attention to your behaviors, that what might be coming up that's different for you, that might be indicating stress. So for me, it might be irritability. Um, for other people, it might be their sleep changes. And that's a warning sign that something's not quite right. And they should pay attention to that. I know I'm a, I'm a sleep champion. I mean, <laughs> the joke in our house is I'm like an Olympic level sleeper. And my sleep has been disrupted over the past six months, for sure. I mean, I'm still doing pretty well, but it's, it's been a hard one for me to, to deal with. Well, you know, and then talking about stress, you know, stress affects our sleep. But then also, you know, so what a lot of people will do is they'll drink, you know, have a couple of drinks before they go to bed to help themselves fall asleep. But it helps, exactly, it helps you fall asleep, but then you're going to wake up earlier. You're not going to sleep as deeply. You're not going to get into that deep REM sleep. You know, and, um, you know, I find even with like a lot of different sleep aids, you know, they'll help you initially, but they build up a tolerance and then you reliance on them to get a sleep, get a good sleep. But generally, the sleep isn't going to be as good. You're going to wake up more groggy, so on and so on. Exactly. Exactly. Sleep hygiene is, is very important. And, I'm, and I can talk to clients for their entire hour with me on that sometimes. <laughs> so let's, why don't we move on to another area? How about, uh, how does exercise affect uh, our brains? Yeah. So, I mean, exercise improves blood flow and oxygen levels, which increases neuron growth in our brain. And the other thing that happens is when we exercise, we kick off a transmitter called brain-derived neurotropic factor, which means that our neural connections are connecting more readily and easily. So when we do regular exercise, we get smarter. Um, so that's pretty great reasons to do it, right? So for sure. brain health, and I want to be specific here, this is just for brain health. So for other body health, you might have other recommendations. But for brain health, a minimum of 30 minutes three times a week is generally recommended. And this is moderate exercise. But to your point earlier, I think helping people break that up, 30 minutes could seem like a lot to somebody who has a lot of work to do and a lot of family obligations. How can you break that up into 10-minute blocks? And maybe one of those blocks is, playing with your kid and one is running around with your dog in the backyard and one is maybe taking a walk around the block. But, you know, how can you break those up into more manageable pieces so you can get that 30 minutes in? That's, you know, I've read in a lot of places that, it, you know, if you do 10 minutes in the morning, 10 minutes in the afternoon, 10 minutes in the evening, it's the same as doing 30 minutes, yeah, you know, exactly. but then also, you know, once again, talking about like instincts, trusting your body, you know, we, everybody's going to have different exercises that work better for them. And one of the things I like to talk to my patients about is like, you know, well, 
if you're in a gym or you're in a yoga class or something, you might see somebody doing some crazy thing that you're like, wow, why can't I do that? You know, it might be maybe that person's hyperflexible. Maybe that person has like longer, you know, deeper or more shallow hip joints that allow them to get into that pose. Or maybe they can squat deeper because, you know, they're, they have more hip flexibility. Maybe they, you know, maybe in the past, like, you know, you had a car accident and you fractured your pelvis. That's going to make you less susceptible to be able to do a deep hip squat. It's going to make you more susceptible to other health issues. And so it's a matter of finding like something that works for you, something you like, something you can stick with. So, you know, I kind of look at it too. It's like you want to do something that doesn't hurt you, you know, because you want to be able to do it consistently, you know, like you're saying, at least three days a week. You know, I kind of look at it even with, you know, with strength training, with cardio, stuff like that. You know, even if you do it, you know, half an hour, three to four days a week is fine. You know, you just want to be using your body, moving your body in different ways that, you know, that, uh, that feel good, that will stimulate your body. You know, and I kind of see as well, it's like even just increasing blood flow, increasing blood flow to your brain is going to help out with brain health, you know, going to help clear out some of that junk, help with the neurological connections. And, you know, exercise is one of the primary ways to, uh, you know, to increase blood flow. You know, one of the reasons why we yawn is that we're getting tired, our brain doesn't have as much oxygen and you yawn to kind of flood your brain with blood, which brings oxygen into it and wakes you up. You know, it's so one of the things I'll talk to uh, people about is like, you know, especially students, let's say, you know, or even, you know, just a regular person, let's say that you're, you know, if you're, in, you're working all day, if you have to study at night or do work at night, you're better off going to the gym, exercising, then going home, eating dinner and working, you'll be much more productive. You know, or if you exercise first thing in the morning, then all these positive, you know, you're going to release hormone, human growth hormone in your brain, which aids in the laying down of neurological pathways. So whenever you go into work after exercising, you're much, going to be much more awake, much more aware, much more coherent. You're going to remember things better. You know, it's pretty cool. There's a whole science behind exercise and what it do, how it helps with the brain. And I mean, it's fascinating. You know, there's so many different connections. Right. Yeah, I think so, about your client who's studying while also working. And, and so for him, like you said, going and taking a, a five-minute you know, walk around the block will actually make him more effective in his studying than just you know, going from one thing to the other. That makes sense. So now the, the last component that we wanted to get to was uh, nutrition. Now, how, how does that help? You know, I have a few ideas about this. I'm curious to hear what you have to say. <laughs> I'm sure you have many ideas, Josh. Um, <laughs> well, so, you know, the brain occupies 2% of our entire body but it consumes 20% of what we ingest. So it uses 20% of what we ingest. And so we know we need omega-3s and vitamins to create new neural pathways. And we also know that there are certain foods such as artificial sweeteners, high fructose corn syrup, alcohol, some grains that can mm -hmm. cause inflammation and then maybe inhibit neural growth. And, you know, I mean, I think about this all the time. I have a huge sweet tooth, huge sweet tooth. And it's so easy for me to grab, I want to grab something sweet when I'm hungry. And I finally, in my life, come to the realization that, no, if I have something important happening that day, I need to eat a real meal <laughs> before <laughs> I do something, and, you know, with like real protein and, you know, real nutrients in it rather than grab, you know, a power bar, which might not really have anything great for me, but might taste good. Okay, sweet. That's so funny because so I, I have, I, I've done a lot of mountain biking. I have friends that are professional mountain bikers. And uh, this one friend of mine, actually, he, was, he, he did a podcast with me earlier, Mike Schultz. Mm -hmm. He was into doing 24-hour mountain bike races solo. So you basically ride like a 12 to 15-mile loop and just kind of do it as many times as you can in 24 hours. 
And I remember talking to him at one point and he was eating like, he was eating like bear claws and like pizza and stuff like that. He was like, well, you know, you digest it easily. I was like, but you know, you can have your nutrition work for you or work against you, you know, and that makes so much sense with, if you have something big going on that you really need to be focused for, if you eat something really sugary, you'll be good for about 20 minutes, but then your energy levels are going to drop and then you're going to be kind of tired, lethargic, not thinking quite as clearly, you know, and it's not a huge difference, but it definitely is a palpable difference, you know, and if you're going in to do something professionally, a difference of five to 10% makes a big difference, you know? Um, I I was going to say, and now that when we're talking about again, brain health and our brains maybe not functioning as well as they might have, prior to the pandemic, just because we are all so chronically stressed, we need to use all of our tools in our toolbox, as we said before. So maybe before you could get away with something like that, but now eating healthy is even more important to keeping us at a baseline that we want to be at. That makes, that makes a lot of sense, you know, and even down to like processed foods, you know, different things that, you know, it's like, because there's studies that show when you eat processed foods, you get an immediate reaction of inflammation, you know, your arteries constrict, and your body has an immediate reaction to it. And so you're not going to be as energetic afterwards. You know, uh, I'm talking with my, my kids right now about that, about how nutrition affects their athletic performance. Because, you know, it's like they don't want to, you know, my older son, he started playing football. And I'm saying, yeah, you don't want to eat anything too heavy before you go into, pra- go into practice. Because, you know, it's funny, he ate, I can't remember what it was, but it was some like fried thing, you know, where he said he went and ate it and then went to practice. And he said he felt like crap, you know, and it's like he wasn't performing as well. You know, he just was sluggish, you know, and you really, you, you see that. And also, you know, dealing with, to- you know, sticking with the topic of not re- of recovering and what helps us recover quicker. We're not going to recover as quickly from the processed foods, from our body's reactions to it. The older that we get, the more it affects us, the more it will affect other areas of our body as well. Yeah. And I think too, again, about, again, my own personal desires. When I'm overstressed, I want the comfort food, right? I want the mac yeah. and cheese and the glass of wine. Yep. And maybe there's a place for that, but certainly not every night. Um, mm-hmm. It doesn't actually help my stress. You know, it's sort of an immediate, immediate, um, it immediately alleviates some things, but long-term it's not actually changing anything. See, and so that, that ma- awareness is important. And that makes a lot of sense too, that every once in a while it's okay, but every night it's, it's not, it's too much. You know, and it's going to start really affecting our bodies if we do it every night. You know, and I kind of see a lot of people starting to do or have been doing stuff like that every night to, to deal with the stress. Sure. You know, so, uh, we, we have a couple minutes left, but I would love to talk about, you know, just spend a couple minutes talking about sleep health and talking about, you know, can you give the listeners a few tips or hints as to what helps out with a good night's sleep? You know, how do you, how do, you do you set things? You know, what, what, what are some things that you could recommend? I think it's important to have a routine you know, so that your body knows, okay, it's good. It's time to shut down. I had a, I have a two-year-old dog and when I got him as a puppy, I was told to do this with him, that when it was nighttime, I was supposed to hold him in my lap and keep him there until he relaxed. Um, and then he knew it was nighttime. And that helps to this day. He comes to me when he, it's nighttime and he's like, let's go to bed, right? It does the same thing for us. It starts to cue our brains. Okay, it's time to start to shut down. So whatever that routine might be for you. For me, you know, I'm, I'm off my phone, you know, about 20 to 30 minutes before I want to fall asleep. So no blue lights, no alcohol late at night. I don't drink caffeine anyway, but, you know, if I did, no caffeine in the afternoons. Um, and then it's whatever your ritual is. Mine is washing my face, brushing my teeth, you know, putting my lotions on, all that good stuff, getting into bed and reading. And now my body knows, okay, all those things mean it's time to relax and fall asleep. And 
I'm lucky that that happens for me. Um, but I do think those are things that are really important for people to think, to try. And again, to your, my point earlier, it's all individual, right? That works for me, but it might not work for somebody else. And so in coaching, a lot of this is trial and error. All right, well, what do you want to try next? Let's see how that works. What was the result of that? That, that makes sense. And, you know, but you, you said that you're lucky with your sleep, but also it sounds like you work at it as well. You know, and I really find that people that, that do things well, some of it can be luck, but generally some of it is working at it as well. You know, being conscious, being mindful of it, you know, not just kind of, you know, expecting, ah, I'm just going to fall asleep. You know, because I've read a lot of different things, kind of like what you're saying with caffeine, where it's like, you know, don't have caffeine for like, you know, I've seen even up to 10 hours before you go to bed. You know, don't eat like, you know, I want to say it's like four hours before you go to bed, you know, no like uh, work two hours before bed, no blue screens or screens an hour before bed, you know, different things like that. You know, one of the things that I'm seeing as well is that, you know, if you eat too much right before you go to bed, then you can get some type of reflux that's very common that people get that really can start affecting their esophagus, you know, and creating different types of kind of precancerous conditions, you know, that and that really affects people's health as well. You know, because a lot of people, they'll go home after a big day of work or, you know, big, you know, they'll go downstairs after a big day of Zoom meetings upstairs, you know, they'll eat dinner and then you just kind of start snacking. And especially if you're drinking alcohol, it makes you more likely to snack. And, you know, next thing you know, it's 10 or 11 o'clock. You've been eating and snacking and drinking continually since about like seven or eight. And, you know, it can make it much more difficult to go to bed. Your sleep's going to be off, so on and so on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And I think it's a good point that it is something I value. I just love to sleep. And so I probably <laughs> do, pri- just like you love to eat really healthy. Yeah. <laughs> um, this is something that I really value. And so I have prioritized in my life. And I'm pretty consistent, you know, at the same time every day, I'm like, oh, time to go get ready for bed. <laughs> but, you know, but I've read though that, you know, routines are very important, you know, and having that time where you're like, okay, it's time for time to do this now. It, may, it, it makes it much easier to kind of do it positively. You know, and to attach new habits to it. You know, they yeah. say once you develop that routine, you can start to attach new habits to it that you want to work on. That makes sense. Now, uh, we only have like maybe a minute left. Is there anything you want to say in closing? Anything you want to tell any of the listeners? Um, any helpful, helpful advice or anything? Um, the advice I'm giving everybody right now is be kind to yourself. Give yourself grace and breathe. Just don't forget to breathe because... That small thing that seems so insignificant can have huge results. And we'll get through this. That makes so much sense. And it's funny. One of the things that I say to patients, I'm like, the rest of the the world is hard enough on our bodies. You don't want to be hard on your body. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Hey, cool. Well, thank you very much. This has been great. I've definitely learned something. I hope our listeners have learned something. Um, Yeah, this has been great, especially during this period of increased stress and pandemic. So thank you all for joining us, um, and I hope you all have a pain-free day. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Pain-Free Day. Make sure you join Joshua Cohen for another program next Wednesday at 12 noon Pacific Time and 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health & Wellness Channel. Now, go enjoy your pain-free day.